Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Mormon Expression. I'm your host tonight, Glenn Oslin, and uh, I'm pretty excited for tonight's topic. This is one that is very near and dear to my heart. We're going to be talking tonight about Mormon folklore, and uh, I have with me tonight two good friends of mine. Uh, first is someone that's returning. Um, she's been with us on a, a former episode. We talked about, uh, what was that, Tears? We talked about Mormon architecture, was architecture. it? Architecture, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, she's also been very active on the Mormon Expression blog. So, uh, Tears, uh, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Um, yeah, I, uh, I live in Delaware. I um, studied folklore at the uh, graduate level. I didn't complete my degree in folklore, but um, yeah, I, that's basically me. Yeah, and uh, joining us as well is Arl, and Arl has also made an appearance on the Mormon Expression blogs, um, and uh, you, you've got a name. What do you go by on the, on the blogs there, Arl? Uh, uh, Fenavod. Okay, and what, what, what's the history there? Well, um, for those who, who, who might know me as, as being someone who argues, you know, for I think there's a good reason for faith, they might be surprised that the name actually is the name used in the book of Revelations for the beast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's in Hungarian where I serve my, I serve my mission in Hungary. Uh, but I just liked the word and used it even though it has these, these very diabolical sounding overtones. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, uh, Arl and I uh, teamed up several years ago and and uh, ran a blog called uh, what was it MormonFolklore dot org that was mainly a satirical uh, blog, and I, I don't even think you can find that in the queues anymore. Uh, whoever took that over, uh, I I think they just do merchandising or something like that now. But, uh, yeah, at any rate, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Mormon folklore tonight, and we've got some examples lined up. Uh, but before we do that, we wanted to to uh, give an introduction on what folklore is, um, just in general. And, you know, one of the things that, that I want to try and focus on tonight, I, I'm going to try and play the role of mediator as best as I can, and I was... I, I was discussing this with Tirza and Arl before we started that you know having the three of us studied folklore which is kind of a strange thing to study you know I, I, there aren't too many degree granting uh schools how many are there i mean indiana university we we all went to indiana university um got got our our master's degree and uh, PhD program. Arl, you you finished your PhD, yeah, right? Yeah, I did finish uh, this year. Okay, congratulations to Arl. Thanks. Yay, Arl. Yay, Arl. Now, <laughs> Tears and I did not finish. Right. Right. So, boo for Tears and me. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger boo to me, Tears. I, I shouldn't boo you, but uh, you know, yay, Arl. And but how many how many programs are there in the country that do this? There there were four back in the day when I was doing. It. Are there still four? Well, there's only one that grants PhDs now, and that's IU. Really? Uh, and then there's one in Canada, but that's it in sort of uh, Anglo North America. So that's that's Newfoundland in Canada that does yeah. that, right? Okay, and then th there was uh, UPenn, right? Yeah, and that program's sort of gone defunct over the last about 10 years. Okay, and then the other one was uh, UCLA, but that one has gone defunct as well? 
As far as I know, they grant masters, but not PhDs. Right. Okay. Oh, such a crying shame. And 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 what does a folklorist do once they have uh, earned a degree, uh, either a master's or a PhD in folklore? Uh, you become Doctor Demento. Doctor Demento, really? <laughs> he has a P- he has a master's from UCLA in folklore. So uh, th- there's the career track. That's the career track. It, it, he really does have a, a yeah. oh gosh. And doesn't the, uh, the the guy who owns the comic book store on The Simpsons, he has yeah. a master's degree in folklore. Yeah, from Berkeley. From Berkeley. <laughs> okay. So he so he got his from Alan Dundas. Yep. That's terrific. Way to go, Matt Granig. All right. Uh, so you know, I was having these conversations with them earlier on that when you've studied it for as long as we've had, it it's hard to have the discussion and not make certain assumptions. Uh, so I, I want to try and have this conversation tonight. Uh, in a way that will be interesting for a general audience, and I hope that we succeed in that. So let's let's start just with the quick question, um, very basic, very general. What is folklore, and who wants to to start with that question? Well, you know, whenever I hear that question, I think of when I was at IU. Yeah, and we would have great debates about how do you even answer that question. Yeah. It's kind of whatever you want it to be. But I I had a conversation with my father last night, and he said, oh, are you going to tell him that folklore is history that isn't true? (laughs) Which I think is a more, uh, well, I hate to say it this way, but a folk uh, version of of what folklore is. Now, what do you mean Uh, when you say folk folk version? So a folk, I mean that, that that is what... Um, maybe the the person who hasn't studied folklore thinks about folklore okay. that it's that it's stories that aren't true, you know things like, um, and and I'll clarify this later, but things like myths and and legends yeah. and fairy tales, um, things that don't uh, fit our scientific definition of what's true in the world. So you were using folk as a synonym for common. Yeah, kind okay. of. Yeah, or they think that folklore is the kind of stuff that uh, the mythbusters bust. Okay, like like that you can become a, a a detective that goes out and debunks things. Yeah, debunks stories or debunks beliefs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is that what folklore is then? Well, um, go, oh, go, go ahead. ahead Sarah. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that um, you know later on I'm going to talk a little bit about. Bert Wilson, who um, is kind of, you know, one of the foundational fathers of Mormon folklore, um, maybe the father, but he defined folklore as study, figuring out what it means to be a human being. Yeah. And I kind of like that definition. Um, I think folklore um, is really looking at what we do without thinking about it in our um in our lives that gives us a definition of who we are as human beings. One, one of the other very popular definitions uh, was artistic communication in small groups, which is really kind of a geeky definition, but it gets at it is how do we artistically li- live our lives? What is it, what is it that we do that gives them meaning uh, in a universe where not everything seems to have meaning? Yeah. And how do we relate to others as human beings? So it's very similar in in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got to tell you when 
when we took our seminar class, you know, my, my first semester as a graduate student and, you know, we had that question at the end, what is folklore? I got an F. I, I, I'm not I'm not uh, proud to admit it, but I did, and I I went into I was so discouraged at the end of that semester. I I did not nail the uh, definition of what is folklore. I didn't I didn't get it right at all. And, and and so now when I try and explain it to people, I always break it down to what the folk is and what the lore is, and that the folk you have to. And, and this is what I would do when I would teach it to my my students when I was teaching folk folklore 101 is. You know, you, you look at the groups, who, who these groups of people are, is the folk. And it could be any group, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like who, who, who are different groups of people that could be considered folk? Well, yeah, obviously here you have Mormons, but it could be even groups of people like Facebook users or it could be, you know, comic book nerds, whatever it may be. Somebody who shares some trait that, you know, le- lends them to see themselves as a group. Mm-hmm. So you agree with that, Tier? I mean, is that something that's still hotly debated among folklorists? You know that they have to share at least a certain certain amount of characteristics in common to be considered a folk group. Well, I mean, I think as academics, we we will hotly debate any topic yeah. that you can give us. So, but I, I mean, I I think that that would be a generally accepted idea of what a folk group is is yeah. a group that identifies itself as a group however they do that i mean it's it's easy to look at groups that maybe everybody would recognize as a group like the irish or um but it's kind of more interesting to look at um comic book nerds or yeah so they they could be defined by as like an ethnic group or a religious group or you know based on hobbies or based on where they work you know all, all different kinds of things that could define them as a group and then the the lore part of that is what kinds of traditions or what kind of practices they have in common and mm-hmm. and you know you, you mentioned earlier that a a common uh conception about folklore is that it's stuff that isn't true right so like what what are what are the different things that can be considered as the lore part of folklore well, I mean, you know, the co- the common ones that people think of are things like legends and myths, like I said before, fairy tales. But, I mean, if you look at the bigger categories, I mean, there is music that is lore, um, folk art, um, the way we name things. Um, I mean, everything from how cars are decorated in groups to the kind of food that we eat for Thanksgiving – um, all of that is considered lore. Yeah. And very often in there, there's a, a distinction between what we consider folklore is what people actually do versus maybe what they're supposed to do. And this is relevant in a religious concept because there's folk religion and then there's high religion or official religion, and they don't always match. And you can say your church teaches one thing, but look at what people do on the ground, and often there's a big disconnect. Right. And and that disconnect can even be I mean I think it's interesting to think that the people themselves who have that disconnect may not even recognize it exists. Um so if you look at LDS folklore um like the folklore of missionaries the things that missionaries believe and do doesn't always line up with the official 
doctrine, so to speak, of the church. And the missionaries probably don't even realize that. If you were to question them about what they actually believe, they would give you the party line, you know, the official doctrine, without realizing that their actions or the stories they tell or their behaviors actually follow a different pattern of beliefs. All right. You know, one one of the things I remember when I first started learning about folklore, you mentioned Burt Wilson earlier. Uh, I remember sitting in one of his classes at BYU and he was talking about salt box houses, you know, which is a, a particular type of architecture that is traditional among uh, houses that, that uh, are built in, in Salt Lake. And he, he, he diagrammed it on the, on the chalkboard and I, I, I don't know if I could pick it out today really. Uh, I might be able to, but uh, I just remember walking home from class that day and I was walking by these houses that I had walked by you know dozens if not hundreds of times before never noticing and I just kept picking them out and going, oh, that's a salt box house. That's a salt box house. And I just had this aha moment that all of a sudden I started seeing them around me all over the place. And it it, it kind of opened up my eyes and was one of the things that made me fall in love about or, or fall in love with folklore in the first place. And when I started learning about things like folk speech, I, I grew up in, in Arizona and one of my favorite things to eat is called a cheese crisp. And I remember trying to explain that to somebody in Utah. You know, hey, I, w- I want a cheese crisp. And they had no idea what I was talking about. They didn't know what a cheese crisp was. And I wanted to go goofy golfing. And they didn't know what goofy golfing was. <laughs> and and I started realizing that, that there were these things that I had grown up with in, in my own folk group as, you know, Arizonans. And it's not even really Arizonans. It's people from the Phoenix area. Uh, that they know what these things are, they know what this stuff is, and people that are listening here that that uh, grew up in Arizona or grew up in Phoenix, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And people who who haven't, they probably won't. Uh, you know, th- these are things that that um, you know help create a sense of shared identity, and and uh, you know, I, I don't know. Th- th- these were things that when I would uh, teach folklore with my students would excite them and they would always bring up examples of of things from uh, where they grew up that uh I, I don't know when i would listen to them i wouldn't quite get as excited <laughs> as, <laughs> as they would so maybe people aren't quite as excited about this as i am talking about my own things but uh did, did you guys have things like that aha moments of your own when when you started studying folklore that got you hooked into it oh yeah for sure i um I remember one of the things that in my first folklore class that we were talking about practical jokes. Oh, or, yeah. And, and you know, thinking back, I, I worked at a fish cannery for most of the summers when I was in um, undergraduate school. And the practical jokes that we played on each other and, and, you know, getting a better idea of why we would do that, you know, why we needed that sort of um, diversion from the... 18 hour days that we worked um and all of a sudden I'm, i saw oh wow we we do this and we do it for a reason you know it wasn't i, I don't know it was exciting to see that that there was a reason behind what we did yeah for, for me one of the, one of the moments like this was uh, i had a class on field work in uh, folklore and i decided to pick as my site uh, the rose hill cemetery in bloomington 
And I went out there in January, and I have to say I froze my butt off observing this yeah. site. But going around and starting to see how gravestones changed over time and how people's at- they reflected people's attitudes towards the dead. They went from being very ornate and personal to by the 1960s being very uniform. And then at a certain point, they get put, put into the ground to make it easier to mow the lawns. Like, you know, we, our dead are sort of compartmentalized away to the point where lawnmowers are more important. Mm-hmm. But seeing these changes was just fascinating to me as I walked around and observed it because you could read so much into people's experience from something like a gravestone. Yeah, and, and, and listening to, to what you have both said, you both talked about the functions of folklore and you've talked about tradition as uh, really the backbone of folklore. So, so why, why don't we, we back up a little bit and, and our, why don't, why don't we, we spend some time talking about tradition? as you know really the, the the defining characteristic of what what folklore is and make sure that we're really clear on on tradition variation uh, all of these things and then move the discussion towards function so that we can get to what Tirza was talking about with uh, you know why we do it and where that value lies yeah well if you say tradition to most people i think they have some notion that it's you know, things that groups of people do and have always done, like Scotsmen always have worn kilts and played bagpipes. Or uh, they they might think of the pomp and circumstance of, of uh, British uh, royalty as being traditions. And that's certainly one understanding of it. But when you start talking to folklorists, what they tend to be more interested in is how people understand the past and make it relevant in the present. So it may be that you reenact something that was done. Like every year, you know, you gather around the Christmas tree and you read uh, Luke's account of, of the nativity or something. Now, you may do that every year, but a folklorist will want to say, why do you do this every year? And what is it that's being carried through and what's important? And these things change, you know, and can change dramatically over time. Um, you know, without going into too much Mormon-specific detail, you know, you look at Mormon meetings and now we have this notion that you manifest your feeling the spirit by being quiet and probably weeping. Mm -hmm. And we tend to get really uncomfortable with pulpit pounding Protestant preachers. Now that's quite a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, but what we don't realize is this whole way that we have of showing, we feel the spirit that we think of as being, you know, sort of always the way it's been only arose when we had electric amplification because before that you had to yell over the pulpit to be heard. You know, so these things change over time, but nevertheless we understand them as being, you know, some way this is the way we've always done it and it has a certain value to us. And so we have folklorists would be interested in saying why does it have that value to us and what is it that we see in the past or even the fictional past that we want to bring forward into the into the present and make important. So, so it it almost sounds like uh, tradition is a fiction in in what you're saying. Well, in, in a sense, it is because it's something we're always recreating in the present. But it's not a fiction in the sense that usually there's some element of what happened in the past that we're choosing to bring forward, and it may mean something radically different than it did. But nonetheless, we've chosen to pr- preserve it. Uh, a lot of scholars in the 20th century made a career of debunking traditions. 
Mm-hmm. Like I, I sort of deliberately mentioned kilts and the British coronation yeah, things, right. which were inventions of the 1800s. Right. Whole cloth inventions. Yeah. But there's other things like uh, – and, 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 and why was that? Why, why was the kilt a uh, traditional – or an invention of tradition? <laughs> well, it – in this case, and this gets at one of the functions of tradition and maybe is, is where you want to go. It provided a way for – well, the cynic would say it was because some guy wanted to market tartan plaids to people. Yeah. But at the same time, it provided a way for Scotsmen to say we're not English yeah. because we do this. This is what makes us Scottish. This is our tradition. You know, you Lollins guys down there, you don't wear a kilt. You don't wear tartan. You wear pants and trousers. Yeah, so it, it, it has a function as a way of asserting who you are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even if kilts were sort of made up, they now are definitely a tradition because people have been doing it for 200 years. Yeah. I think it's a good place to kind of define, you know, how we use the word true um, as folklorists because I think, um, you know, with that idea that folklore isn't true um, – it's that's a specific definition of what true is like a true tradition is something that's lasted forever and ever and ever and there really aren't any of those around because traditions just change that's what they do um but they're still true because it like you said it reflects something real it reflects a real meaning it has genuine meaning for the people who carry out you know, these activities, um, I mean, it's almost hard to, to explain, um, but, but folklore is not a judgment of truth, I think is the most important thing. We're not making any judgment at all of whether a thing is true or false. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and truth oftentimes is what people agree on, right? You know, and and I, I think one of the, one of the concepts when, when I was talking about the Christmas tradition, you know, the, the reading of Luke each year, what the folklorist is interested in, I, I, I was thinking about the concept of communal recreation because you've got communities that will be practicing this tradition each year, but they might add a new wrinkle that there there might be something that they do this year that they didn't quite do last year that's a response to something that's going on now yeah. and, and and so they're they're recreating the tradition a little bit differently each time and and it's something that's being done as a group and you know so so there's this term communal recreation that folklorists look at or at least did. <laughs> I mean, again, I've been out of it for a while, so I don't, I don't know if this is current or not. But uh, I, I, I always found that interesting that that a lot of folklore is anonymous. You know, that there's, that you're really not looking at the if it's if it's art or if it's song. You're not looking at the work of an individual author, but you're looking at the the work of groups and communities and people because it's something that's done together um, as a group a lot of times Um, not always necessarily by one individual although that that can happen as as well Um, but uh, okay so so do do we do we want to 
get into the uh, the functions at, at this point why something might stimulate a, a change or a variation because that's an, that's another uh, defining characteristic of of a piece of folklore is that it will exist in multiple variations you you might find something that 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 looks very similar to something else you know here there uh, across cultures um you know the 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 story that i tell about my mission companions uh encounter with the devil when he was praying for a testimony <laughs> you know is very similar to what happened with my uh my friend who was in uh italy and he ha- he knew somebody who knew somebody whose companion was praying and and had the same experience or similar experience you know we we've all heard those kinds of stories and somebody goes, oh, that that's almost what happened with me. And it's these things that exist in uh, multiple variation. Um, let, let me just make an aside here. You, yeah. you touched briefly on something that we call in folklore, the fof, the friend of a friend. Yeah, yeah, the fof. Um, F-O-A-F, you know, it, friend of a friend. Yeah. That you, you find often these variations, they're always second and third hand. Yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes they're, they're first hand like you're talking about, but very often – you say oh, I heard you know somebody who knew that this happened, and you and these stories will circulate, and they're always you never can quite find the the person that they originated from. Yeah, which allows them to escape the idea of there being an authoritative version, and in fact encourages them to change to meet circumstances. Yeah, I I think it's important to to say that there's a reason why those kind of changes happen, and. You can take a story – like I love um, my grandmother and aunt um, w- had a flat tire um, once on the side of the road, and a young man came and helped them. And it was really amusing to me to hear them tell the story and then retell the story because it became – more and more like a three Nephite story, like yeah. one of those stories where somebody comes and they save you and then they disappear. Um, I mean, this was something that really happened. Somebody came and helped them and then he went away. <laughs> um, but because there's this, it's more meaningful if it's something uh, spectacularly spiritual, um, they actually over time, totally unconsciously. I mean, they weren't consciously trying to turn this into a three Nephite story, but as they told the story, it became more like that. And I'm sure if anybody else outside the family told the story or people within the family, that it may over time become more and more like a three Nephite story because that's an easy way to remember the story. It fits um, the kind of expectations that you're driving, somebody um, is out kind of hitchhiking, you pick them up or they help you in some way. Um, and that fits other stories that people tell as well. They give you the winning lottery number. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, we've we've kind of teased with the, the Mormon parts of folklore enough. Uh, you know, b- before we really dive into it, though. Let, let, let's quickly talk about the functions of folklore, because you've mentioned Tirza that this stuff this stuff exists because it's meaningful, and it, it actually adds value to people's lives, and that's why folklore study it. You know, we're we're not out to debunk, um, you know, we're not out to be unpopular. We we really do 
um, look at this because it's it's valuable in, in people's life. That's what's interesting to us. So wh- where does it add value and, and why is it I- important to people? Well, I, I think one of the reasons why it's important is one that we've, we've discussed is it, it gives you a sense of who you are and who you belong with, that there are other people out there who are like you, that, yeah, there's going to be some differences, but they're people you can relate to that share certain values with you and that are, are in a sense, like a, maybe an extended family. Yeah. And another, I, I mean, the things that we do that would be considered folklore serve specific purposes, each of them. So I think of one um, kind of Mormon folklore um, area that I, that people I know have studied. I haven't actually studied it, but um one area is date request rituals, like um, how young teenagers and young men and women ask each other out. Or oh, yeah. At, at one time, I, I mean, I have no idea now, but at one time, this was a really big thing. People would do elaborate, elaborate, you know, go into somebody else's house and yeah. put up hearts everywhere and make yeah. a cookie that was shaped like a heart sort of thing. Yeah. And if you look at that, I mean, that serves a lot of different purposes. It it um, takes some of the pressure off of, in a weird way, it takes the pressure off of asking somebody out because you deflect your stress and your angst about that into the ritual that you're doing. And you've done this enormous thing for them, like they're going to say no, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, so it, so it, it, it uh, kind of forces them to say yes. And um, it also, I think, in, especially in the Mormon context, deflects some of the sexual tension that there is in dating because it makes it about something else, you know, um, this creativity um, instead of the, the passionate sort of um, one-on-one love sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, there are specific reasons why we may have these um, – traditions and then because they become part of a group identity then everybody expects it of each other you know you you'd be kind of hurt if somebody didn't go out of their way to do a really elaborate invitation to the prom if everybody else gets one yeah so so you can you know with those with the with the creative dating you can kind of see who's the cream of the crop and who's not and it you know you, you can compete with other people that way Exactly. Yeah, I, I, and I think you know when when you're looking at a, a to, to me the the biggest function when we get into the Mormon folklore of of a lot of the beliefs and the legends especially is to validate the belief. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just see that so strong, and we even call them faith promoting stories. <laughs> I mean, how more obviously can can you be? We say we want faith promoting stories. We're saying we want our stories to function to promote our own faith. Uh, right. I, 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 well, yeah. It's like, it's like the, the old uh, one that went around for years that Steve Martin was Mormon. Yeah, yeah. You know, and everybody would say this, and it changed over time. I heard them, you know, for a while people said that uh, Tom Hanks was Mormon, and then Big Love came out, and that one disappeared overnight. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah I heard Michael probably. J. Fox and, and all yeah. kinds of – well, and that one came to bite me in the ass because, you know, again, with my mother-in-law, she said that uh, uh, Gladys Knight was Mormon. And I said, oh, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> <laughs> guess what? 
Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I think that validating belief is, is one. And I think there's also the, uh, you know, educational. We, we learn what's appropriate and not appropriate behavior um, within Mormon culture through our stories. You know, so, so we have these cautionary tales. Um, and, and we're able to um, vicariously explore the limits of what is what what we can get away with and what we can't and i i remember as a missionary there were a lot of stories um that vicariously allowed us to release our sexual tension <laughs> you know there are I, a lot of those there there are a lot of those <laughs> one thing that a lot of this does too is they help shape a concept i know you wanted to get to glenn which is worldview yeah you know uh, worldview, uh, just just to explain, it's a concept that uh, came out of scholarship by a guy named Max Weber, who some people, you know, some listeners may know, which basically are your your fundamental beliefs about the way the universe works. And uh, Weber famously said that you know you could sum up the Protestant worldview as time equals money, that this was somehow a key to understanding the way Protestant brains worked. And when we tell these different stories and look at the consequences, we set up expectations about how the universe works at a fundamental level. You know, uh, bad deeds get punished, good deeds get rewarded. Uh, you know, and, and uh, we tell stories that you know really help us understand how we're expected to interact with society and the universe around us. Yeah. So I, I remember getting really frustrated once in a graduate course it was actually on worldview where i felt like we spent the entire time discussing the uh the elements that made up the sky without ever walking outside of the classroom and looking at the clouds uh, um so do any of you have any good you know examples of folklore whether it's stories or anything else to to talk about and just use as, as illustrations for these for worldview whether it's worldview or any Mormon folklore or anything that we can talk about to kind of get away from this high-level academic discussion that we're having. Well, uh, take a look at all the stories that circulate around about how if you pay your tithing, um, you know, food shows up on your door or whatever. If you make that choice, you know, you, you seemingly you don't have enough money to live or to pay tithing. And so you're told, you know, you pay, somebody pays their tithing and, you know, the sack of flour shows up on their doorstep. The unexpected raise arri uh, arrives. Uh, you know, the, these tell us something, the, these circulate because they try and teach us that, you know, if you keep the commandments, God will provide for you. Now, of course, the problem arises then when, you know, you pay your tithing and gee, your kid does go hungry still. But nonetheless, they circulate as a way to validate certain expectations about how we relate to God. Yeah. I, I actually have a personal experience tithing story like that from when I was a teenager where I, 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 w I was debating whether or not to pay tithing. I, I had the opportunity to, to go to uh, San Diego with a friend of mine. Um, you know, my parents said I could go if I had enough – if I earned enough money. And I had the money, but it was set aside to pay tithing. And so it was this temptation to me. Was I going to pay tithing or was I going to use that money to buy the plane ticket? And I decided, you know, I'm just going to take the money, pay it to the bishop. And if I don't go on the trip, I don't go on the trip. And as soon as I paid that tithing, this woman came in and said, hey, we made a mistake in payroll. 
and I'm going to cut a check, you know, for the the mistake that we made, and it was the exact amount that I needed for the plane trip. And I interpreted that as, you know, the Lord saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And, you know, I got what I needed to go to uh, to San Diego. Now, what actually ended up happening on the trip to San Diego, I can't quite believe that the Lord sent me there to do. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't always, you know, fit the exact story line. But I told that I told that story because it fit perfectly the 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 cultural narrative, you know? So I, I shared that story many times as, you know, an example of exactly what you said, Arl. You know, if you do what you're supposed to, the Lord is going to bless you and you'll, you'll get what you want. I think if, if Zilpha were on here right now, she would be saying magical thinking, Glenn, magical <laughs> thinking. I think it's interesting. I mean, if you think about that, cause you give a good example of, of the fact that you fit the story into a genre that already exists of these tithing stories. Um, and, and it has to have certain parts and it ends at a certain place. You don't want to know the rest of the story because it might not fit the rest. I, I I remember once at BYU, um, at my ward, the high council speaker came and, and spoke, and he started telling the story about this guy who was converted um, in Lebanon. They allowed missionaries for just a brief period of time in the like late 60s, early 70s, and he was um, Lebanese and, and was converted to the church. He came to BYU, and he was telling all these uplifting stories about this guy. Well, Pretty soon I realized that he was talking about my former roommate at BYU's dad. And um, I went up after the meeting to to talk to him. And he didn't really want to talk to me. I was surprised that he wasn't really interested. But it occurred to me that I knew the rest of the story. Yeah. And I knew that this guy was not an active member of the church. That he didn't have necessarily a whole lot of positive thoughts about the church. And, and if he knew the rest of the story, it might kind of ruin the way he was telling his story. Um, and, and so, I mean, there's a reason why we end our stories where we end them because yeah. it fits what we need them for. And, and it kind of goes back to what we were saying about function. And, you know, we, we understand the function of these stories, you know, as faith promoting, and that's what we want them to do. And I, I remember Bert Wilson telling a story where he was talking about personal narratives as a genre of folklore, and he used his mother as an example. And she was in the audience when he was giving a lecture, and he called her stories a fiction. And she took great umbrage at that, and she chewed him out afterwards, and he said, it wasn't fiction. I was there, and I lived it. <laughs> you know, and, and he, he told it very comically that, you know, how dare you call my life a fiction? And he would explain, you know, yeah, y- you did live your experiences, Mom, but you pick and choose the events out of the, the experiences that you have, and you string those together into a story that you're telling because you're trying to make a point. And, and as you do that, you're creating a, a narrative. You're creating a fiction, and that's why we're using the word. And, and it also kind of gets back to, to what you said earlier, Tirza, about how folklorists approach this concept of, of truth and what is, what is true. You know, it, right. it's, I, it's a very different. I have a great example of that from my little personal um, 
you know, specialty in folklore is actually the personal narrative and life histories. And I've studied, you know, Mormon life history and how that's constructed, you know, the common way that we tell these life histories. And um, for my master's thesis, I looked at um, actually the same roommate, her grandmothers, one of whom is Palestinian Lebanese and the other is uh, Choctaw Indian. And the Choctaw grandmother is a member of the church. And um, she had written her life history, which is a common thing for LDS people to do. And if you looked at her life history, it was fascinating because the thing that she left out of the story was almost anything about her husband she told about meeting him and about marrying him and then just kind of left him out of the rest of the story so that the rest of the story kind of fit this nice lds narrative about um family happiness and and um you know joy and all that in a good family and this was a woman whose husband had affairs on her, who um, was bipolar and not a good husband at all, and ended up leaving her. And she left all of that part out of the story in order to make the story fit the Mormon genre. And if you weren't paying attention, you wouldn't have even noticed that he was not in the story. Yeah. And I think, Arl, you made the, the point earlier on that there is a there's sometimes a distinction made between official and unofficial folklore in in religion. Did you say something about that earlier on? Yeah, yeah. the the idea that you know you sort of have like official theology, but then what act, people actually do is often quite different, and it comes and goes in waves. Like right now, we're at a time when you know people like to talk about unconditional love, and yeah. you know. In Spencer W. Kimball's time, that would have been considered absolutely out there. You know, yeah, he emphasized yeah. this stern Jesus who was going to hold your feet to the fire. But 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 it, it seems it seems to me that you know, like I, I used to think that that official uh, official religion is official religion and unofficial religion is folklore, right? But but then when I started looking more closely, I, I see it, it's all. Yeah, folklore. Blends. You know, I yeah. mean, the, the, it's it's just people. You know, I mean, you've got you've got people in official positions, and you've got people that are grassroots, and there might be these folk traditions in back in, in grassroots, but you've still got your folk traditions in the the official corridors, and if if you have people that are telling pieces of the story for one effect in the grassroots like Tiers is explaining uh, yeah. we certainly see that <laughs> I mean we certainly see that in the official story that's being told in, in the church as well right mm -hmm. I think I think you just have to think about that talk that President Packer gave um, the un the unwritten rules of the church do you remember that talk no um, I mean he basically was talking about things like wearing white shirts. And I mean that there are a lot of rules in the church that aren't written down, but they're still part of the official church in a way. When, when did you he know? give that talk? Do you do you remember? Oh, I, it would have been in the '90s, sometime. Okay. I think. Hmm. All right. I was thinking about. Uh, I, I I recently was thinking about. Uh, Pullman's talk that he gave in '84. I was wondering if Pullman was responding to uh, to that when he spoke, but 
Um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> a folk expression. Yep. Yeah. Well, I should do, since you keep bringing Burt Wilson up. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I should give a little background on, on who he is and, and why he's important to Mormon folklore. Wonderful. Um, so, um, Bert or his William Wilson is his is his um, full name. William um, A. Wilson. William A. Wilson. Sorry. Stands for um, Albert. <laughs> um, he uh, actually he studied at BYU, and he ended up going to Indiana University and studying folklore. That was not his original intention. He didn't intend to study folklore. He was doing like English literature folk, uh, and Finnish literature. Um, but he ended up in folklore at Indiana University. And his focus there was also on Finnish folklore. But the his mentors at IU were really, they encouraged him to look at his own culture, to study the LDS culture. You know, they said people are not studying that enough. And he came back and he started teaching at BYU. Um, when he was at BYU at in his classes, he, he would have the students collect stories or traditions um, as part of their assignments in his folklore classes. And he did this through his whole career. And he would have every student turn in two copies of everything they collected. And one of those copies he would save in an archive. Well, he ended up moving to Utah State University. He took copies of all of those archived um um, student collections to Utah State with him, and then he ended up coming back to BYU. He brought them all and the stuff he had collected at Utah State back with him, and those um, collections became the foundation of two big folklore collections, the Fife Collection at Utah State University, um, which has those collections and then many, I mean, it's one of the biggest folklore archives in the country now and the BYU archive which is now called the William A. Wilson Folklore Archive um, and is now part of BYU's special collections but um, you know because of Burt Wilson he really encouraged a lot of um, of his students to pursue folklore yeah. um, and it's kind of amazing how many LDS folklorists there are. I, I should should mention one other name in this context is uh and this is actually one of the ways i got into folklore was um burt wilson had a longtime collaborator collaborator john harris also right, in the english right. department yeah and i actually studied norwegian literature of all things under john harris but he would bring up folklore kinds of topics all the time and that's one of the ways i got interested i never met burt wilson but i knew john harris well i think burt wilson had a huge i mean he just had a big reach and where he would push people they would find this i I think people had that conversion moment that we talked about before where you realize that folklore is something that you experience in your day-to-day life and somehow that that captures people's um enthusiasm and interest he he was he was you know i he 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 passed away a year ago um and uh i i i wish that we would have been able to get him on um he was such a great ambassador for 
just Mormonism in general, but but especially the the topic of of Mormon folklore, Mormon culture, right. um, you know, a fixture at Mormon history associations, um, and uh, you know when he, he was president of the American Folklore Society, very well known, very well respected, and uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was just a great guy. Um, dearly missed. So, um, in, in the time we have left, um, I, I've, I've asked each of you and then I myself have as well to prepare about five minutes worth of spiel on some of our pet interests in Mormon folklore. And so let's start with Arl. You're going to talk about what, Jay Golden Kimball? Yeah, um. Jay Golden Kimball is a, a really interesting figure, and I think this is still current, that there's a lot of stories circulated about Jay Golden Kimball. And for those who don't know, Jay Golden Kimball was a member of the Quorum of the Twelve during the time of Heber J. Grant, a historical figure, and he was known as the Swearing Apostle uh, because he would routinely over the pulpit uh, put in lots of dams and hells and shits and things like this. And was routinely rebuked by other members of the Twelve, but he'd tell them things like, uh, you know, I won't go to hell because I repent too damn fast. Yeah. You know, the, these famous kinds of stories that, uh, that got told. Uh, now, when we look at him from folklore scholarship, he represents a kind of figure that we call a trickster. And tricksters are these figures. They, they, the name comes from studies of Native American uh, folklore where there's figures like Coyote and Raven. And there are these figures that do just outrageous, bizarre things that don't seem to fit into the social order, like Jay Golden Kimball swearing over the pulpit. Um, But this gets at one of the functions of folklore that we were talking about earlier, is they provide a way to try on sort of alternative views of how things should work. And often, despite doing these things that seem really bizarre, they're very integrative. So when we look at Jay Golden Kimball stories, we tell these stories about him saying things that give us, you know, sort of like you mentioned with the missionaries telling, you know, vicarious stories to release sexual tension. We get way people telling Jay Golden Kimball stories to explore ideas that maybe you can't quite comfortably address in sort of mainstream discourse. But by putting it on this other figure who transgresses boundaries, you can discuss them safely. Uh, now, one thing about trickster figures is often that they they say things that seem really weird, but in the end, they, uh, they're they very beneficial. And in that line, one of my favorite Jay Golden Kimball stories was uh, about a time early in – well, in the church's history when there was a huge debate over whether or not women should wear makeup. And uh, you, know, you had people in the – Relief Society general presidency, you know, decrying this as, as, as harlotry. And it, it, it sounds silly now, but this was a hugely important issue at the time because you had younger women who wanted to wear makeup and older women who said this was, you know, of the devil. And one of the stories about Jay Golden Kimball is he was at a state conference and it happened that the Relief Society general president was there. And at, he'd finished delivering his speech, and at the end of it, uh, a young woman 
raised her hand. Uh, he'd, he'd asked people to, if they had any questions, and she raised her hand, and he called on her, and he said, uh, and she said, Brother, uh, Brother uh, Kimball, what do you think about women wearing makeup? And people who were in the audience said there was just this dead silence, and you could see the Relief Society president, General Relief Society president, leaning forward, ready to do battle with him if he said the wrong thing. And he just stopped and he finally said, well, I reckon I have yet to see a barn that couldn't use a good coat of paint. All right. And what it did by making such an absurd statement about it is it allowed everybody to laugh at it. And people said that was the moment when it ceased to exist as an issue of tension within the church because he'd found a way that everybody could step back from it. And very often this is what the trickster figures do. And so – you know, when we when we exchange Jay Golden Kimball's stories, it provides us a way to, you know, look at some of the tensions that exist within, you know, sort of official Mormon positions, folk Mormon positions, and try and reconcile them. Now, there's a lot more stories about them, and some are just told to be funny, but, you know, we tell these stories for a reason. And often, yeah, they're funny, but it goes beyond that as well. So, I, you know, that sort of just covers w- what I had prepared for that. All right. How, how'd I do on my time? Uh, four minutes and 12 seconds. Pretty good. Right <laughs> <laughs> Tirza, do you have any uh, favorite Jay Golden Kimball stories? You know, I don't have any in mind right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, boy, I think I think my favorite, and I never tell this one right, I, I think – there was one I heard as a kid that's always stuck with me where he was with a group of, uh, the, I think, the 12, and they were at a hotel. They were all ordering postum, and he asked the waitress, you know, when when you bring them postum, just give me a coffee and just be discreet when you do it. And when she brought it, she made a mistake, and she actually gave it to the prophet at the time, maybe Joseph Fielding Smith, whoever it was, and... Uh, he he took a sip and realized what it was and said, oh, who was it that ordered the coffee? And he kind of sheepishly raised his hand and he said, Elder, Elder Kimball, I would rather commit adultery than drink a cup of coffee. And he said, well, hell, President Smith, who wouldn't? <laughs> I, I always liked that. And I was a kid. I didn't even realize at the time why it was funny, but I, I kind of liked that one. All right. So Tierza. Uh, you're up next, and your uh, pet topic is personal narrative. It is, and, and I've t- talked about it a little bit before. But you know, I was I'm quite fascinated with with where not just personal narratives, but life history itself um, fits into the Mormon um, kind of worldview. Um, it's one of those things that. You know, you feel this responsibility to write your life history, but there's no actual theological reason to do it. It's actually a combination of two different um, sort of ideas um, in LDS doctrine. First, that, you know, this idea of um, genealogy and turning the hearts of the children to the fathers. Um, And then there is this emphasis in the Doctrine and Covenants on record keeping, like 
almost an obsession with keeping detailed records of everything. And those two things have kind of come together in people. It's amazing. I, I have, you know, kind of ferreted out life histories from people um, over the past um, 10 years or so. And it's amazing the lengths that LDS people go to to make sure that their life histories are written down. Um, but it's interesting how culture affects the way that we, we, I mean, that we even tell stories about ourselves. So a lot of people say, well, why, you know, a personal narrative, that's not folklore. Going back to that, it's true um, sort of thing. But there's a way that we tell our stories. And I know you're going to talk about patterns of three, um, Glenn, but um, that's a big one that shows up in story. So I have this story from my sister. Um, she used to work, she lived in Indiana with me when I was there, and she worked at an eye doctor. And one day, um, they were sitting in the eye doctors, and there was a big shake, a gigantic rattling of their wall. And they ran out to see what it was, and they saw this woman, um, an old lady, had crashed into their wall and then backed up and backed into the cars behind her. And then parked her car and went into the doctor's office that was next door to their eye doctor um, for her appointment. And I shared that story with a lot of people and people loved it. But I had several people say, oh, that is just a um, an urban legend. And the <laughs> reason that people thought that was because it fit the genre perfectly. There were yeah. three things that happened. Um you know, like she hit the wall, she hit another car, and then she parked. Yeah. And, you know, it fit the, the expectations that we have for a really good story. Um, and people do that with their own personal stories. They they um, leave stuff out like we talked about before um, in order to fit it to this beautiful, you know, the best storytellers um, are people who are able to fit their own life into our expectations of what a good story is. And we have very um, strong cultural expectations of what makes a good story. Yeah. And, and would you repeat what, what you said at the beginning that you, you said that you didn't think, or you did think that there was a cultural expectation within Mormonism to tell our own stories? There is definitely a cultural expectation there isn't an actual theological reason to do it. Like if you go back into the scriptures, um, an actual, like the commandment sort of thing, you know, like there's a commandment to do genealogy. What weren't we like told, to, like, didn't, didn't president Kimball tell us like that we had to write in our journals and it wasn't that like a commandment or something. Very much later in, okay. in LDS. But not like theological I mean, but, thing. Right. President Kimball did much later, but the, this history of writing our life histories is, is a, an ongoing thing. And, and, you know, if you look at an LDS life history, you're always going to start with a conversion. And like, like for instance, my grandfather's story, it starts with the first person who joined the church. Who cares what happened to the people before right. that? Like you don't, you know where they came from. But you don't know their story. You know the person who joined the church, and that's where your life starts. And then it goes on from there. So so you've got like a tale type 
that exactly. it follows. Like you, you've got this plot, these plot points that are that there's a, a congruence between one person's narrative and another person's narrative, kind of like what we talked about earlier with the the tithing. Thing. Exactly, exactly, and people are going to include the same basic um, elements in their story. Um, I mean, there's the common Western story of, you know, I was born, um, this is my parents, these are my siblings, this is what I did when I was a kid, this is where I went to college, sort of emphasis. But in a Mormon story, it's going to always start with a conversion. Um, it often has like a a movement towards the church in it, whether you personally or somebody before you. Um, the the important life ex- experiences of baptism, of um, going on a mission, that's a key point in, in a lot of LDS stories. Although, you know, it's older people who write their life histories. And the older stories, a lot of the men didn't go on missions. I mean, you know, my grandparents' generation, because they were all in the war, so there weren't missions going on, but... Do you find like common phrases that are, you know, like parents, goodly parents, you know, that are like Nephi type language borrowed from the Book of Mormon? Um, You know, it's interesting because there are two different approaches to that. There is that kind of language in some. And then some um, really, well, like again in my grandfather's, um, his family was always a little bit rebellious. Mm. LDS. I mean, he's an active member of the church, but but they were always kind of, you know, the kind who would get divorced or have marital problems and that kind of thing. And like he talks about his grandmother who had the opportunity to marry into a polygamous marriage. And like he calls the guys that she could have married the old goats, you know, that kind of uh, kind of. (laughs) <laughs> rural language and and kind of mocking the the LDS culture. Huh. That that fits though into one of the uh, stereotypes of LDS speech that's been well analyzed by people is this idea of speaking very plainly and avoiding sort of highfalutin language. You know, in your personal narratives, you don't want to sound affected, and so you you sort of affect almost a, a very folksy style. Well, and I, I think that's true, and I think that there's a fondness for in. I mean, I just gather this from the kind of humorous stories that I've heard from people. Um, that there's a fondness for the that um, trickster kind of story, like Jay Golden Kimball stories, um, where a little bit of naughtiness is really popular in in. Um, Especially in the oral versions of of LDS life histories. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And and that was your master's thesis, right? Was was yes. uh, oral histories. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks. Well, you, you went over seven minutes, but that was because uh, we asked you questions because we were uh, really interested in it. So good job. Well, I'm glad it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it was your fault. You made us interested. <laughs> Dang it. Okay. Um, and and mine, uh, to wrap it up, uh, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about three patterns. And uh, th- this this was kind of a, one of those aha moments for me. And uh, 
really came from an, an essay that I read that was written by Alan Dundas, who uh, also uh, passed away within uh, well, maybe the last 10 years or so. Um, he was a, a folklorist quite well-known at uh, UC Berkeley, and the essay was called The Number Three in American Culture, and I think it's available online. You can Google it. Just to summarize some of the, the main points, um, he, he mentions at the beginning that three is not the only important symbolic number. You know, you've got twos and fours and nines and twelves and some others that have some traditional significance. But his his claim is that threes are especially dominant in American traditional culture. And he spends some time looking back at uh, threes in, you know, Roman culture and, and, and other traditional um, uh, culture in, in the Middle Ages. Um it, but but some of the things that I took from this is that the number three does not generally exist in nature. Um, you know, you don't go to a tree and look and see, oh, there's three branches on that tree. There's there's much more than three branches on that tree. And you don't say, oh, there's three leaves on this tree. There's much more than three leaves. You know, pick out a, a, a flower and there's three petals. You, you, you don't just find three occurring randomly in, in nature. So usually when you see three, it's because there has been this pattern that has been imposed by people. Um, and the reason it's been imposed by people is because uh, these human beings are comfortable with threes for some reason. And, and the reason is tradition. Um, we've, we've been brought up in a tradition, a traditional climate where threes feel comfortable. It, it feels complete. Um, it feels like there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, which is itself a three pattern. And we see these in speech patterns. If if somebody was really astute and they went through and they listened to the patterns of speech that we've done in our podcast, they would hear it in the things that we say because we might say something like this and something like this and something like this. And even our intonations would have a speech a three pattern in it where the way that we end it with a, a, a heavy emphasis on the end, you know, would, would, would end it with a three pattern to give a sense of completion to what we're saying. Um, so three patterns really surround us and, and they're really pervasive in our culture. So I, I just want to give some examples of, of, uh, some, uh, three patterns in American culture, like three cheers, hip, hip, hooray in baseball, three strikes and you're out. Um, if in some cases there's three like uh, shirt sizes, small, medium, and large, and where you have uh, other sizes like X, extra large or extra extra large, they're still defined by your original three sizes. So you've still got that three pattern being observed, even though you've got extra more than three there. Um, when you talk about time, people are either early, they're late, or they're on time. You've still got the three pattern being observed there. Um, if you think about common joke patterns, you've got maybe something like a Catholic, a Methodist, and a Jew walk into a bar. Um, maybe children's songs like London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Um, you go to an intersection and you look at a stoplight, you've got red, yellow, and green. You think about name abbreviations like JFK, Martin Luther King. You know, people having a first, a middle, and a last name. You know, we talk about this about, with uh, general authorities in the church. Uh, a lot, so the list goes on and on, and that's that's just very quickly thinking about American culture, and I'm sure uh, you can find many more examples of that. So if you think about this in terms of Mormon culture, um, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, the three Nephites, 
to think about the bishopric, the first presidency, all auxiliary presidencies. Think about the degrees of glory with the terrestrial, the telestial, the celestial kingdom. Even the degrees of glory within the celestial kingdom, there's three degrees there. We've got three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. Uh, supposedly there's three witnesses that are reportedly needed to witness the truth of anything. Uh, the number of times that we repeat certain uh, ordinances in the temple. Uh, the number of hosts of heaven, one-third, who followed Lucifer's plan. The offices of the Aaronic priesthood for the youth program, uh, deacon, teacher, and priest. And then the equivalent for the young women, beehive, Maya maid, laurel. Uh, the triple combinations of scripture that we carry around that actually contain more than three books, but we call them triple combinations. Samuel the Lamanite's prophecy of a day and a night and a day with no darkness. And there's probably more than I actually listed as I was preparing for the podcast, but those were some three patterns that I thought right off the top of my head. So, you know, for me, when when I whenever I see a three pattern, I'm immediately suspicious. And I ask myself... Am I looking at the fingerprints of human creation? You know, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. You know, is this something that really exists in nature? If this, is this really how the universe, how the world is, or am I looking at human creation? But it, at least it makes me ask the question. It makes me want to look a little bit closer. So, you know, I, if, if I was still in academia, I would be kind of interested to look at the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and, you know, may, maybe I'm overstepping my bounds in saying this. Um, I, I'm not an expert on this, but it, it might be interesting to look at the Book of Mormon for three patterns and and to say, you know, if if three patterns are truly an indication of modern culture and human authorship, you know, if the Book of Mormon is a 19th century fa- fabrication, one would expect to find, you know, several instances of three patterns within the Book of Mormon, don't you think? Mm-hmm. I mean, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know that you really find them a lot in there. And so then, then the next question would be, if if you would assume that Joseph Smith is the author of the Book of Mormon, did, did Joseph Smith use three patterns a lot in his writing? And I don't know. I, you know, one of the things I just did kind of a quick and dirty. I went and looked at his Joseph Smith history with. Uh, uh, you, you know what what he wrote about the the first vision. I didn't see a lot of three patterns in there either. I, I mean, I don't have a conclusion to anything. I just think it would be interesting to look for that that sort of thing. Um, so maybe that's a challenge to somebody out there to, to give an exhaustive study because I'm not going to do it. But uh, anyway, so that that's kind of what I'm interested in uh, with with three patterns. That's really interesting. You got me thinking about. Now I'm trying to get, go through the Book of Mormon in my mind real quick, since I had the whole thing memorized, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and think of three patterns. I, w- I was thinking about people, I, you know, like. Well, you know, you if you if you really think about it, like Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel are a three. I yeah, mean, but there's Sam's almost not. Yeah, but it's not quite a three. Yeah, but, but it seems like if if I'm doing that, then I'm kind of imposing my own desire to find three patterns on the Book of Mormon. I mean, it, it seems like it needs to be more, you know, like if you've got the three little pigs, that's the three little pigs, and then a big bad wolf, you know, or Goldilocks and the three bears, that's very clearly a three pattern. If I'm saying right. Nephi, Lehi, and, and or, or you know, I, 
that it seems like I'm ignoring a few people to try and create a three pattern. You know, I, I was trying to do that with the sons of Mosiah and Alma the younger, and I just you know, or Alma and Amulek and Zeezrom, or oh, you know, can I get a can I get a clear three pattern that I can use for this podcast? Come on, please, three pattern, be there. I, I started praying for it, and it just didn't feel right. <laughs> One thing to keep in mind, too, is is if you do find them, three patterns are actually quite prevalent in, in Hebrew scripture, too. So you could say, well, you know, did they were they pulled over from there? But in Hebrew yeah. scripture, you also find four patterns quite commonly. Right. And, and you know, one of the points that Dundas makes is that other cultures, especially he says that Native American culture, four pattern is more common than three pattern. So if if you were if you were looking at the Book of Mormon as being a genuine record of a non-Western European culture, maybe you would want to look for cultural patterns that weren't something that that would be a uh, you know like a European uh, yeah. three pattern, you know. Well, you you can rest assured, whatever you find, Glenn, it will be widely debated. And <laughs> I'm not looking. So, so anyway, uh, we're, we're at the end of the line, guys. The, the only thing I want to say is j- just ask each of you to, to define myth. Just, just to back me up on this, because this came up a few months ago when Tom was telling me that a myth is just stories that aren't true. He's wrong, right? He is wrong. Okay. Arl. Yeah. yeah. Tom, totally wrong? <laughs> He's okay. watched too much Mythbusters. All right. Okay, yes, so bottom does. line is Tom is wrong. And with that, the discussion continues over on the website and on the blogs where Tierza is front and center. And uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully you'll join us again sometime. And thanks. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>